Could I speak frankly, no holds barred? Please. That is one messed up thing to do. You sure we can talk straight? Um, a few months ago, Gary got his first vote. You know what that is? If memory serves. Oh, great. Anyway, since then, he's been, uh, slapping the salami. No offense. No. Apparently, he's going for a world record. Chicken's burning. Oh, oh. Yeah, that looked good, too. Anyway, uh, he was afraid there was something wrong with him, you know? Like he was a pervert or something. I told him that's what little dudes do. Evolve. That made him happy. Gary. Yeah. Even smart. <laughs> I never even knew he had teeth. I guess the boy Gary's age really needs a man. Yeah. Well, mm. it's on the man. I had a man around. He used to wake me up in the morning by flicking lit cigarettes at my head. Hey, asshole, get up and make me breakfast. You know, Miss Buckman, you need a license to buy a dog or drive a car. Hell, you need a license to catch a fish. Don't let any butt-reaming asshole be a father. I was with another agent, Pat Webb. Pat was an explosives agent. So we kind of opened the door just to get to each other. As we opened the door, uh, we were both pretty much overcome as we, as we looked across the cabin at the shelves that were built on the other side of the door. We could see coffee cans and bottles and jars, and they all had labels on them, and they were very meticulously done. We could see that some were labeled seen a race like this? No, but as Jeb says, every race is different. But uh, it is slightly shocking to me. Because? Because he doesn't give many answers to how he would solve problems. He sort of makes faces and says insulting things. I mean, he's said terrible things about women, terrible things about military. I don't understand why people are for him, for that reason. I'm a woman. I'm not crazy about what he says about women. Mrs. Bush, what do you think of Donald Trump? You are, you are known for being blunt and plain-spoken. I don't think about him at all. I think about Jeb, the qualified candidate. You dodged me on Donald Trump. Do you want to? No. Nope. 
You want to go full New Jersey on Donald no, Trump? No, no. I do not. I don't even think about it. I'm sick of it. That's, that's very strong. Did you hear me? I don't even think about him. No. Not at all. I'm too busy swinging from the chandeliers. From the chandelier. Here. Ears. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast. You Montana cabin building, salami slapping, jet mothering screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. Have you been missing me? I bet you have, my little, creamy turtle posers. Here's an idea. Outlaw bozos and yahoos. Yes, I said it. What a fantastic episode we have for you this week. It's number fucking 40. Lordy, Lordy. Humor and the abject is 40. LOL. Anyways, our guest this week is Kendra Jane Patrick. She's about to launch a brand new gallery space in New York City, the biggest little apple in the world, this coming spring. It's called Harrison and it's going to blow your fucking minds. Right now, she's got a pop-up show giving a little preview of her programming at Bortolami in Manhattan. Make it a point to stop by. It looks like it's time for me to cook a rack of baby back ribs and beat the living shit out of my parents, so I'm going to bounce. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 40 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Did you hear me? It's episode 40. Quite a number, isn't it? Can't, can't really believe that I've uh, done 40, 40 episodes of this, but to those of you who've been there since the very beginning, thank you kindly. To those of you who are brand new, uh, welcome. To the Black Parade. LOL. Thanks for joining me. Uh, it's almost the end of January. We're one month here into 2018, and I'm uh, very excited to have a special guest on the podcast this week, Kendra Jane Patrick. We have crossed paths several times over the years. We were both part of the artist-run gallery Essex Flowers, though at slightly different times. When I had just exited, Kendra came on. She was involved with them for a couple years, but... What I'm talking to her about this week is her new gallery project, Harrison, which will be opening up a brick-and-mortar space this spring here in New York City. Very exciting. Uh, right now, Harrison has a pop-up show at Bordolami, and it is called 21st Century Occupational Adjustments and Considerations, Episode 1, Magnification. Yes, I know that's a very long title, but we get into it in the episode here, uh, you know, about where it came from and all the concepts behind it. It's a show, primarily a video, a little bit of sculpture uh, with three different artists that we'll hear about today. Um, really glad that she took the time out of her extremely busy schedule right now to come over and talk shop about what it means to be a gallerist. You know, the relationship that you form with your artists, the mutual risk that you share, and just exciting to have people from a younger generation taking on that role and rethinking exactly what it means and how to support the people who are making the work. We also learn a little bit about Kendra's unorthodox uh, pathway that led to art. She has a background that's 
very different than uh, most people who, who pursue a career in the arts. And we learn a little bit about the parallels between law school and getting an MFA. Who knew? Uh, so thanks very much for tuning in. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Kendra Jane Patrick. Okay, cool. Uh, Kendra Jane Patrick, welcome to Humor in the Abject. Uh, how's your week going? Uh, you know, it's going. Yeah? It's busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a busy time. You just had an opening. I did. I did. I just had an opening. Um, it's kind of, um, you know, I'm kind of thinking it, I'm thinking about it as uh, my sort of inaugural exhibition uh, for my art program, Harrison, uh, which will be a full-fledged gallery program. Um, in the spring. Yeah. So you're going to be doing a, a brick and mortar space. And, and right now you have a pop-up. We can talk about that in a little bit. But yeah. um, I'm curious what the vision is for Harrison um, and maybe what, what prompted you to want to start a space right now? Well, you know, in terms of the vision for Harrison, you know, I think um, of my favorite art, as meaningful objects, right? Uh -huh. uh, objects that operate as, you know, cultural talismans, objects that operate as mirrors, you know, as uh, telescopes. I wanted a program uh, that started from that, from started basically from my own sort of uh, recognition of like the power of art. From there, I guess I just, you know, I was with Essex Flowers uh, for about two years. Um, and after that, I decided to just spend a year just kind of thinking, you know, because um, it is a, you know, a strange time to um, start a gallery. But it seems like the it, it seems really important that you have this physical space because you could you could certainly, you know, sort of be a curator who has kind of like a roaming practice or you're working in different places or you could have a program as Harrison that does primarily pop-ups, but it seems like you're pretty set on, you know, this space is important. Yeah. I think it's really, so I think that part of the job that gallerists do uh, is um, legitimizing uh, the artist uh, with whom you work. Yeah. And I think that certainly, you know, I'm not saying that you need a space to do that, but I do think that a space kind of... Um, a space, I think, undergirds the direction of your program, right? By giving you this site, this specific site that you can consistently come back to, that you can work your ideas through. Yeah, yeah. You don't um, have to reinvent the uh, floor plan every single yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And it really, you know, I think that pop-ups, you know, not for nothing, this is probably just like a personality quirk, but I mean, it's, you know... I think also as a gallerist, your job is executive production, mostly. Like, that's your job, you know, marshalling resources uh, for every show. And you do it over and over and over again. And frankly, I mean, just doing it in a space that's not yours all of the time. It can be stressful. Yeah. yeah, it can be a little stressful when you're kind of always on borrowed time and resources. So would you say that, um, <clears throat> would you describe yourself as a gallerist before curator i guess i think that's part of the job you yeah. know what i mean like it is I, a different job i think right yeah. yeah i mean i think that they they can be and i think maybe that just depends on the individual and kind of what you you know what you want to take on some people just don't want to deal with the sales part you yeah. know i mean like the art market is 
very unregulated. You know, it's like <laughs> it's it uh, is. It is. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it still operates on a lot of handshakes and understandings and sort of like old, uh, you know, uh, sort of organizations of uh, society and social power and money. The notion of curator doesn't address all the things that you're talking about, about money and sales and the practical paying the rent. Yeah. Other things like that. And so I think if you wanted to just, if you didn't want to, if you don't want to deal with that side of things, you know, um, you know, I think, and I think there are some people who don't like it. They think it's a dirty business and it can be, you yeah. know? Um, and so I think it would make sense to just kind of set up shop and you would set this, you know, or to go into someone else's shop rather as a curator uh, and kind of be in charge of maybe direction or the way things are organized. But um, to like, to me, the sales component, right? is part of my job as a facilitator of these important objects, you know? So it seems important to me not just to present it, but to place them in places where I think they can be most impactful. Yeah, and it feels like, too, that you are assuming, because you're saying that these objects are important, that these artists that you want to work with, that not only does having a physical space... um, you know, in a sense, legitimize them yeah. as saying that this is part of this gallery program. But you're also assuming some of the risk, which creates a different type of trust, I think, probably between you and the artist versus if you were just sort of doing itinerant curating here and there, which is sort of like, oh, I'm doing this thing. And do you want to be in it? Which is absolutely a respectable practice. But yeah. to to take on the role of gallerist, to put a space together, you're really also taking on a different type of risk that maybe creates a more intimate relationship with the artist that also is probably longer term. Yeah. And I think that was some, you know, I think I uh, have learned so much from uh, the artists in my life. You know, I mean, I I felt like, um, you know, I graduated from law school uh, and was, you know, up until then had been thinking I would be a lawyer, you know. And, you know, I graduated, took some time to really think about what I wanted to do, kind of feeling that some force was pulling me some other way. And then around that time, you know, I... You know, I had a friend who was just kind of coming to New York and making art, and I began to hang with him and his artist friends, and I just really enjoyed the way, like, this community, this community of people, the way that they approached, you know, thinking about the world or their lives, you know, it was so combing over the, like, intricacies of life, you know, to to bring to bring forward or to highlight parts that might be interesting or scary or beautiful or whatever. And I thought that, you know, while I was using the same analytical set, a skill set as, you know, as, as an attorney, uh, I wasn't able to uh, somehow, you know, in the art world, it seemed to really flourish. They really seemed to take shape in this different way. So, and I think I credit so much of, you know, them being able to flourish with these artists who were sharing their ideas with me. Yeah. I think it was almost natural for me to, you know, assume, you know, given that it was these close relationships with artists that really also helped to sort of move me through the art world and uh, teach, you know, train my eye, teach me how to think about art, look at art. Uh, it almost was really natural to me that I would, you know, continue with these very intimate relationships with artists, which is, you know, kind of what you're saying, exactly what exactly what it gives me yeah that's an interesting way to come to art so you didn't you didn't i mean you didn't go to art school before going to law school no no um i was at so during law school i happened to be working at a i was working at a fashion photography agency here in new york i was in dc at the time and so i was spending my summers here 
And when I graduated, I kind of thought, all right, you know, maybe I'll go back. You know, I knew I didn't want to practice. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll go back to New York. I really like it. And I can work, I can continue working in fashion. Maybe I'll be an agent. You know, that'd be an easy kind of, uh, an easy transition. And so I got this internship at a fashion art magazine. Uh, and I started to write. One day, you know, I was an intern and I was supposed to be working in fashion production. And they said, well, you know, why don't you write about art for the magazine blog? You know, we just, you go around, you, um, you, pick, you know, whatever exhibitions or artists you want to write about, you know, they're just thinking about content. Yeah. And uh, I did it and I never looked back. Uh, I never looked back. And so it was kind of this journey of, you know, I wrote for a while. I think that's how we met, right? Probably yeah. when I was yeah. still writing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I, you know, I wrote for a while and then I just kind of is uh, from there is going to law school and then deciding that you don't want to practice is that a common thing <laughs> um, this is totally foreign to me i'm asking with seriousness because i feel like yeah. there are also there are people who go to because i imagine and correct me if i'm wrong that law school is kind of like the the graduate school for people who are aiming to become lawyers um the same way that somebody might go get an mfa or something then decide actually i want to do tech or yeah. I want to do this thing or something. So I'm just curious if that's like a normal thing to go to or if you were like a total anomaly. Um, I don't know. You know, I think I think that um, a few things like sort of helped me decide my fate in a way. Uh -huh. <laughs> and one of them was that I started law school in 2008. Okay. You know, like the year of the crash. Yeah, yeah. And, I, was in, I was in grad school during that. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, and so the, the culture around the kind of jobs that you get, the, the, the entire culture, I think around, I should say more precisely training young lawyers for the profession changed because, so prior to 2008, if you went to, um, if you went to, I think in, in the community, it's kind of called like a top 14 school, okay. you know? So if yeah. you go to- And like where did you, did you go to Georgetown? I did, yeah. Okay, that's gotta be a top 14 school, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so it's like, <laughs> if you go to a top 14 school, the the deal is that, you know, you know that essentially you'll be courted by- Sure. The, you know, the, the richest firms, really. Uh, that's not how they would put it, but that's kind of what it is, the richest yeah. firms. <laughs> and, it's like the Yankees. Yeah. They have the most money, they're the best team. Yeah, so you know, you get, you get your cushy summer job, you know, you're paid a lot of money for, I mean, for these summer associate jobs you would especially if you were working in new york or dc you were making a lot of money a week you're young you uh -huh. know because a lot of times you might you're like the young professional set yeah exactly <laughs> you're going straight from you know i went straight from college i was 21 uh -huh. you know um and so you you know you the expectation prior to 2008 especially because a lot of these big firms you know they were servicing the big banks you yeah. know so they were able again to take on maybe 400 people in a summer associate class, pay them all an astronomical salary, fly them around, <laughs> take them to dinners, and it was no sweat. Yeah. When, you know, what was it, like Bear Stearns was first, uh -huh. right, if I'm not mistaken. I think that was the first one. Yeah, and so when all these banks start crashing, you know, the the work changes for these the law firms. You know, now they're, um, you know, these banks, their assets are gone, they can't pay people. So this changes, um, this changes this, the... I think very abruptly, everyone's expectations about what would happen to you after law school. Yeah. You know, so I have, was... I have a cousin who's a lawyer and he had, I'm remembering this now that you're saying this was, mm -hmm. we were driving in a car one time and he was explaining to me this kind of, this thing that had just never occurred to me, but the conundrum of he'd gone to law school mm -hmm. and he was like, you know, five years ago it was where I went to law school. When I got out, I would have had a job. And now it's like, and I was like, oh my God, that's, it. and he went to school around the same time as you and I did. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, that was a really similar 
experience to going to graduate school and I started in 2007 with this idea that Did you go for your, your MFA? Yeah, mm -hmm. with this idea that I was going to get a full-time faculty position somewhere. Like uh -huh. that was, you know, that was a sort of safe route. Was, was that like, was I'll, that the route like you so That's you what get... I wanted to do. Yeah, I wanted okay. to get an MFA, gave you the credentials to be a college professor uh -huh. and I was like I'll still make art but this is a pretty like, you know, being an art teacher at a college at like a good college is a relatively decent way to make a living. It's not some astronomical salary, but it was yeah. consistent. And then right around the same time, yeah, 2008, I was in the middle of school and it was mm -hmm. all of a sudden like everything changed and yeah. everything went to adjunct. And I remember mm -hmm. my cousin saying he was telling me this and I was like, I would have never thought that law school would be like a similar parallel. Yeah. That, that those things would be kind of yeah. happening in the same way. I mean, and it's, and you know, I I would say that probably like very many, because the thing is you, you actually, it, law school is interesting um, just because it, it should be a trade school, <laughs> you know, because mm -hmm. you need a license. You have to know, you That's know, true, yeah. actual, you, you know, like the way you have to know, you have to be able to analyze a legal document, which takes a particular kind of training, you yeah. know, and like there is certainly a philosophical, you know, foundation um, upon which, you know, like American laws rest. Uh, but there's a lot of, you know, you need to know the laws in your state, you know, they differ yeah, from yeah. state to state. Of and course. so, you know, I think it's, 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 in, it was interesting how, um, you know, before the crash, you know, law schools were doing a lot of, like a, a lot of the technical training wasn't happening. Huh. You know what I mean? So you, or I shouldn't say that it wasn't happening, but you know, you don't, like at Georgetown, I don't know, I, I don't know if we're going to take this out, but you know, you don't, <laughs> like you learn. <laughs> it's like, you know, you spend, you know, I took evidence with two federal judges, for example. And the federal laws of evidence are helpful, right? If you are going to practice law at the federal yeah, appellate yeah. level. Okay. If you're going to live and work in DC, you know, or New York or wherever, you need training specific to that state. Right. What happens is that you end up getting that training, so to speak, the crash course by taking the, your state bar. Okay. Right. So you take your state, you take it, you take the test to be barred in your state. And this is kind of your kind of basic crash course to all the the relevant sort of, you know, the really all the laws in your state. Uh, and then when you start working, this is kind of when you start training. Okay. Back in the old days, though, like before the institutionalization of, you know, everything, you, you know, you would be uh, an apprentice as a lawyer. Because, again, you have to know how to do the job. Yeah. And so you would work under a lawyer for X amount of time. And then that's, you know, that's how you learn the job. That's what artists used to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, that's funny, though, true. That you were probably washing brushes. Well, the thing about the, like, <laughs> the um, learning all the kind of nitpicky kind of very practical stuff is, I mean, that's a big critique that people have of art schools that in art schools are trying to overcorrect this by creating these uh, styles of curriculum that are often called something like professional practice. Mm -hmm. And so they're meant to kind of teach you all the things that you know people complain you don't learn in art school but i don't know that they necessarily do a great job because everything is also hyper specific it's like and granted like you could have a very new york centric kind of approach to professional practice that maybe would be helpful uh -huh. if you're an art student here because uh -huh. it's like let me introduce you to the institutions and organizations or whatever but if you're going to art school anywhere else besides like chicago la or new york yeah it's like what professional practice can a school in like really what can besides something in like gaming 
tech or design, mm-hmm. like what can Savannah College of Art and Design yeah. really teach you about yeah. living in a major city as an artist? Yeah. It's all or just being a professional kind of, artist, which is yeah. like its own thing now. You know, like you could be an art, like anyone can make art, you know, yeah. but I think like if you want a budget, you know, yeah. representation, et cetera, being a professional artist, like maybe that's the argument. Is that, I mean, I, you know, yeah, I mean, for, and I think, for especially why being in major cities or maybe, you know, or, uh, yeah, I don't know. You well, know. I've visited colleges and stuff and it's like, it ends up, you kind of have to like break uh, a student's heart when they ask, like, you know, when, when I come to New York, so do I put a portfolio together and come to galleries? And it's just like, no, mm-hmm. you a hundred percent don't do that. And they're like, well, <laughs> how do I do it? And you're like, in nepotism, <laughs> like drink with the right people i don't you know i don't know what to tell them it's kind of like heartbreaking but that's the kind of the reality of it is there's no <laughs> there's no specific way that's correct i mean it's sort of funny you can it's like you were describing your path like nobody could predict that would happen no. you know that's not like a way that you can direct somebody to be like go to this undergrad then go to georgetown for law <laughs> Decide not to practice, but start have hanging an ex- out. Have an yeah. existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and then meet some artists in New York. And then eventually, you'll just start a gallery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, which, which is what we're here to talk about, is, is your gallery. And um, sorry for going on the diversion, but I was just so interested in that kind of like... No, it's interesting to me, too, because I actually do think there are a lot of parallel... You know, I think... And, and that's kind of what I was going to say, is one thing I think the crash did do is in a way, it, after just stopping the gravy train, you know, <laughs> just the, you, we all had to think about what we wanted to do, yeah. I think, because we had to make ourselves more competitive for these jobs. And in truth, you know, I had an ex-boyfriend, you know, I was dating during law school, and he he work, um, he works at, you know, one of the biggest firms in, in the country, in the world. And, you know, it's, but it's like he was one of the people who should have had those jobs, right? Like yeah. he... You know, he he likes working 80 hours a week. You know, it's fun. 80 hours? <laughs> yeah, he mm. likes he likes the grueling schedule. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he likes, you know, I mean, do you know how many just words you pour over a day? Yeah. You know, like do it. I mean, he and he's that kind of person. And he and I think it rightfully so, the jobs like that go to people like him who were going to not do anything during law school. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. work and put that same amount, those same amount of hours into their coursework. He should have that job. So in a way, I think that it did, it forced all of us to reexamine what we wanted. And I think for me, it, like, and I, I got a, I had a law firm job, you know, yeah. and I think that kind of made me solidly decide I did not want to practice. <laughs> <laughs> I had a law firm job, you know, I was making money, you know, I'm like yeah. 22, you know, I'm making all this money a week, just kind of doing document review and writing memos to partners, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it was really crazy. And it was nice. It was, I mean, not nice, but it was, cause it was, it was a difficult decision to make. You know, I think a lot of people, the advisors, you know, they thought I was out of my mind, you yeah. know, <laughs> they thought I was crazy. <laughs> um, but I do, but I think, you know, I, I would say now you probably have more people who, go to law school less, you know, uh, where I think less people are going to law school. And yeah. I think that... Um, I think it's the same thing with graduate programs yeah. in art. The, yeah. I think the numbers are pretty... Um, are they dropping off similarly? Yeah, mm. I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, just having worked at uh, art schools, um, seeing the decline in kind of like graduate applications. But that also, I guess it's a 
It's a many splendored thing that mm -hmm. also has to do with the proliferation at many colleges of multiple graduate programs. So they almost mm -hmm. like self cannibalize, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you could have two really strong ones, That's but it's true. kind of like, but it looks more prestigious to, I don't know, to whose eyes, but to some people's eyes to have six graduate programs. Yeah. And so they launch a bunch of them, but you just end up like spreading your numbers thinner and getting like a, a you know, the, the quality isn't quite as yeah. high. The reviews just by default end up being less rigorous and you get a less, uh, I think, kind of like interesting class of people mm -hmm. like for each year that come in or something. But but I mean, law schools, you know, and I mean, I would imagine this is the same with art schools. You know, I do think that, you know, the um, like I got a great education at Georgetown, yeah, I'm you sure know, you it's yeah. and it's like. You know, I think that people who want to be lawyers should go to do that. You know, well, yeah, and just I think, like I think if you want to do heart surgery, you should go to medical you should school. Go to medical I don't school. want, yeah, yeah, I don't want like DIY crust punk heart surgery. Yeah, and I think you know if if this if schools you know are more are not spread so thin, and the and the education is more is I think it it can only be better geared towards people who want to be artists. Yeah, you know, who yeah. are like I'm gonna starve or you know starve and paint starve yeah. or paint whatever there's, there's like nothing, they should have the they should yeah. be in the art school well know? and there's nothing there's nothing in like theory uh wrong necessarily with like graduate school and art like the idea of having this kind of time post undergraduate to really like focus and develop mm -hmm. in theory is really cool mm -hmm. it's just like there's no reason it costs so fucking much. Yeah. Like that's the, I mean, that's Same. the real problem. Georgetown's like around 70 grand a year. <laughs> yeah, a year. Like, that's like what art schools cost though. So you probably, <laughs> you probably aren't any worse off for having gotten a law degree. Actually, it's probably more interesting to people. You know what I mean? Like, um, Is it that much for MFA programs? Like 40, 50, 60? It can be. I, I, I'd say probably like private art schools. Yeah. I'd say the average is, and I'm like, I'm just spitballing here, yeah. but I would say 30, 35 okay. a okay. year. Yeah. Um, but people take out a graduate plus loan. People yeah. take out credit card debt. I mean, it ends up, you know, you can debt. still come out from an MFA uh, even with no undergraduate debt. You could come out with six figures, like yeah. no problem. You could absolutely run up a six-figure debt. And then you're like, I have an MFA. And everybody's yeah. like, that's not a real degree. Yeah. Yeah. It qualifies you to do a thing that only exists as like a one class per semester job now, really. Uh, I mean, at large, which is kind of the, that's like the bummer about that. Would, would maybe like, wouldn't, this is going to sound so, so, I'm sorry, podcast people. This is such a dumb question. Is there, I mean, is there, would like an advertising, you know, would like, could you, you know, could you take that entire advertising your MFA or? I mean, I think that, you know, like. I think you can do. There are definitely like MFAs in design. the The thing, uh. the thing with the, um, the thing with the MFA is that it is technically a terminal degree. It's technically like the PhD in the field, uh -huh. whereas an MA, like a Master's of Arts, is not. Uh -huh. So if you have an MA in like comparative lit or yeah. something, some schools you're not qualified to teach at them. You're yeah. supposed to have a PhD. Whereas the idea in art school land is that. An MFA is the degree. That's like the doctorate, basically. It's the equivalent, but um, the the only thing it qualifies you to do is to teach. Um, but there are no teaching positions, so I don't think if you went to Wyden Kennedy or to some other major design firm and you said, "Hey, look, I have an MFA," that they would really give a shit. Uh, okay. I feel like they would want to see your portfolio and your social media numbers. <laughs> honestly, okay. Like, 
Okay. I'm sure that you could acquire the skills, but I don't think yeah. that <clears throat> I don't think the way that those that the curriculum is set up in those programs that it would really help somebody. In fact, like the whole two years that you spend in MFA is like critically ripping apart things that, you know, would be in design, mm. you know, mm-hmm. that you would use for design mm-hmm. or you would use all that, like you would they like train you to make fun of that basically uh, you know okay, <laughs> like okay, okay, it's okay, like okay. a lower form of creativity <laughs> <laughs> that happens to help you buy a car <laughs> and like feed yourself well she's got a law degree but says she can't find a job and is now drowning in debt the first of its kind case just went to trial here in san diego team 10's melissa masiha was in the courtroom for the start of what could be a bitter courtroom battle melissa Anna Alberta says basically Thomas Jefferson lied about how good of a school it was. The question the jury will have to answer is whether she walked it through these doors misled by postgraduate employment information or did she just not work hard enough to get a job she really wanted. It's taken five years to go to trial with two opposite stories. Anna Alberta graduated from Thomas Jefferson School of Law in 2008, but she says the road to becoming a lawyer hasn't been easy. And what she found was that employers are not hiring Thomas Jefferson graduates. And her lawyer says she was smart, graduated with honors, passed the bar on the first try. But she says the school lied to her and other students. TGSL told the public that its graduates were far more successful than they actually were. And Ms. Alberta, the plaintiff, went to TJSL because she believed those false employment figures. The lawsuit states the school includes all postgraduate jobs in its employment figures, including if a student works as a part-time waiter or convenience store clerk. She paid more than $100,000 for a law degree that was not what she purchased, and she would not have gone there had she known the truth. Thomas Jefferson's lawyer said during opening statements, Thomas Jefferson's data was overwhelmingly accurate, uh, but was there any Uh, plan or practice to falsify evidence? Absolutely not. Attorney Mike Sullivan admitted collecting employment information is challenging, but he also argued Alberta got two job offers after she graduated, including one at a law firm. She turned that down for a higher paying legal sales job. The evidence will show that the reason she attended Thomas Jefferson School of Law at the end of the day was that it was the only law school that she was admitted to. Alberta's lawyer says they also filed the lawsuit to stop the school from putting out what they call false statistics. She is uh, asking for $125,000 in damages. This trial expected to last a couple weeks. Reporting live in downtown, Melissa Masiha, Team 10. But anyways, I mean, we could we could talk about this more, but I want to I want to talk about no no, it's my fault. I'm I'm getting all excited because I'm like, oh, their school is fucked too. But um, I want to talk about the preview that you have up for Harrison right now. That's at Bordalami, ah, and it's yeah. up through the 24th. Yeah. And the title is 21st Century Occupational Adjustments and Considerations, which it is a mouthful, uh, <laughs> but seems very relevant to what we were just talking about. That and yeah. this one is sort of subtitled Episode One Magnification. Yeah, um, I was fortunate enough to come to the opening. Thank, Thank you, you so for much. inviting me. Um, what can you tell people about the show as this kind of like first? Because you did something with Kenya Robinson before, though, that was also a Harrison. It gig, was, right? but yeah. was that a performance? It was so. Um, 
So a few things. So on so Kenya had a performance at Gimney Dance Center uh-huh. of uh, this piece she's working on called Paper Rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of like this ongoing, um, this kind of ongoing exploration of kind of um, like cash, mm-hmm. um, cash and um, what cash means, like what having physical, what, what physical currency means in the age of Bitcoin yeah, and, yeah. you know, uh, et cetera. And so um, this was a, a project that I really, I thought was important and interesting and fun. Um, and so, uh, you know, I kind of helped to produce the production for Gibney Dance Center, who okay. was doing, and Gibney had at the time was doing this sort of series, um, series of um, for artist performances. Um, they're typically like kind of a dance performance and practice space okay and so they had this uh this short series where they were incorporating um like performance artists cool into their programming and so, so that was under you produced that sort of under the harrison yeah, band under harrison. as this kind of like this is a first gesture yeah so you kind of dip your toes in the water with this yeah. kind of like performance based thing and then yeah. um but now you've got this like proper show and uh <laughs> not that anything before was improper yeah, but i yeah. just mean like when you sent the invitation i was just like oh that's pretty cool that bordolami was just like you want to use this space, but you you told me at the opening that they had uh, had someone else in residence before yeah. doing the pop up space for a couple months. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Stefania is wonderful, and I think she's one of uh, she's one of the you know uh, one of the blue chip uh, gallerist dealers. You yeah. know, who's really with um, a blue chip name. I mean, yeah. Stefani Bordelam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have to start a gallery. You have to, right? Uh, yeah, and, and so no, and their she, programming's really great too. Yeah, and so she, you know, I think she's been, you know, she has. Uh, art in cities where she's kind of uh, producing uh, exhibitions in other cities um, with um, with artists you know whom she's with whom she's interested in collaborating and I kind of think of this as sort of uh, an extension of that of her kind of like wanting to you know explore and engage with um, all sort of facets of the art world so before yeah, yeah. so um, she has this viewing room in the front of the gallery uh, which is where um which is where episode one uh, is currently staged. And before this, Queer Thoughts um, had a show right, in right. the sa- in the viewing room also. Okay, cool. Yeah. And uh, so for your show, you've got, well, Kenny Robinson's in it. And mm-hmm. then I wasn't familiar with the other two artists, but that was my introduction to them. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah. Um, so Ivan Argate uh, is uh, Colombian born and now lives in Paris. And I showed two works from him. Two works, uh, both are from 2011. And both, you know, I'd been thinking about for some time. Uh, and Ivan just has this way, you know, I, I would say that his his work is kind of about, um, I think that his work in a lot of ways is about cities. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I would consider that to be his primary material. And uh, so the, the two videos uh, that I chose to show, He's using um, people in cities uh, as material, uh, but also as as um, as material. But his gestures also uh, give them also paint these kind of beautiful and interesting and empathetic portraits of them. Sure, yeah. Um, There's the one where he's he's licking the subway pole <laughs> over and over again. That's just sort of like you can't you can't be upset with somebody for filming in public if other people in the background if they're if they're going to do that, you're just sort of like, all right, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. And, and if you're in the frame, I mean, if I saw a guy licking the subway pole, 
I would not be in the camera frame. I'd be off at the next car. <laughs> uh, off you at know? the next car. It's true. <laughs> and, you know, that, that piece is so interesting because, you know, uh, uh, we spoke and, you know, he said, you know, people will touch religious monuments forever you know if they think it's the you know the blood of jesus was on you know this particular statue people will touch it they'll kiss it you know there's no problem somehow somehow um somehow uh we're able to kind of come together right like or or rather we're, we're sort of guided and brought together by these sort of like transcendental or metaphysical aspects of humanity and so the practical aspects right the germs etc escape us at you know in in these 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 moments but on the subway forget it (laughs) and he was saying and this piece really came out of you know uh that piece really came out of uh his thinking about you know this really funny you know again like these really funny aspects of uh being human you know that kind of make no sense together but kind of Beautiful that and kind of funny. flexibility that you do. I mean, that just reminded me of. I remember when I was probably like eighteen or nineteen at Michigan State University. I found a bag of weed in a parking lot, mm-hmm. and I smoked it. <laughs> if I'd found a sandwich, factory wrapped sandwich that was still it's cold true. from the ref- refrigerator it's at true. the grocery store next door, yeah. I wouldn't have fucking touched you it. You wouldn't have touched it. No, yes. but I was just like, I'll smoke this weed. Yes, it was just. It wasn't even in a ziploc. It was just <laughs> you twist up, and I was just like, this could be. This could have any number of things in it, but, you know, whatever. It's it's just a, there's a flexibility or something. It's interesting to think about, like, a devotional object versus, like, a utility object. And I think as an 18-year-old, I I saw weed as this, like, devotional. I was like, it wouldn't be, it's great. It's not going to be bad. It's not going to be bad. But, like, food, which was, like, a utility. I was just, like, a teenager. I was like, whatever. I I just eat food and I eat, you know, keep going. I was like, don't eat that. But... (laughs) It's so it's the exact it's the exact same thing, and so yeah, the piece is called altruism. <laughs> cool. Yeah, the name of the piece is altruism, um, which is great, you know, because it's so beautifully evocative of this, you know, this exact kind of crazy fact about about being a human. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Really funny. And, and the other artist in the show, is... yeah, uh, is Rosa Menkman. Okay. Uh, Rosa is, I mean, she is one of those. I, I think one of the greatest things about you know doing this job is when you see something you've never seen before. You yeah. know, and I felt like I just had um, never seen the the. Uh, particularly the arrangement of forms that I saw in her video uh, called DCT Siphoning. Um, so I should say the full name. So the the, the full name is DC, DCT Siphoning, uh, the, one million, the one millionth interval, uh, and then in quotes, the 64th <laughs> interval. <laughs> and it's a piece that really, um, uh, she uses, she uses this 18th century novel, or 19th century novel, excuse me, uh, called Flatlands, uh, which is kind of this parable of sorts where uh, a it's a parable told through objects where the father object takes his son objects through a world of objects and teaches his son about life. Okay. Um, and so she decided to, in her exploration of, you know, in the press release, I kind of say the atoms of digital images um, because um, there are building blocks to every digital image. And... Um, being able and being able to transfer these images onto different media to play them in different programs uh, is actually kind of complicated, right? Sure, and it yeah. and it um, 
I don't know how to do it. Yeah, it's incredibly complicated. <laughs> but more importantly, or, or I, not, I shouldn't say more importantly, but I think, you know, um, she, so in addition to kind of really studying this and being, considering herself kind of a theorist on glitch, um, there's this aesthetic component that's um, that's amazing. Yeah. And well, so it, that's it, what. It was know, cool to see at. because I feel like that there was this, there was this moment maybe around like 2011, 2012 or something when like, um, I think Glitch got a bit of a bad name just because yeah. it was like any, it, well, people just realized like minor, minor exploitations that you could do with technology. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, isn't this weird? I compressed it too many times and now it looks ugly or something. But there's yeah. a, there's also like, um, in her work in particular, there's like this entire structure going on yeah. and like a lot of exactly. almost like poetry or nuance happening. That's, that's actually really complicated. It's, it's really not, complicated. it's not about like, I felt like a lot of the early Glitch stuff was like, watch me break this thing yeah as opposed to like it, it seemed um it seemed like reactive instead of generative yeah like I, I just remember off the top of my head like there was somebody who was taking uh, a jpeg of <clears throat> i don't even know I, i'm getting this wrong so i'm gonna create like a version of what someone was doing but like taking a picture of uh like walter benjamin let's say and uh downloading the jpeg opening up the source code and then copy pasting in like an essay by Walter Benjamin into the middle of the code. So it would break the image and turn it into glitch or something, mm -hmm. which is like, I guess, slightly more interesting than just like, look, I put it, I put video distortion on something. But, mm -hmm. um, but still, it was almost like, a, okay. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, I mean, literally copy paste. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I think, we, and I think with Rosa, you know, it's this, it's this just, it's, and I, you know, I, I, um, I was, there's one point in, and so the way, um, another feature of the video is, so it's not, she kind of, she's written some text, um, uh, kind of in the spirit of Flatlands, the novel. And so she's written, uh, this text, um, that's almost like the father, um, the father block, uh, sort of narrating his experience of taking the baby block through, um, all of the different visual components that he'll need to be able to compress and then transform. Mm -hmm. And um, so she writes it kind of, I mean, it's interesting. It's it's written kind of like a narrative. It's a little, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek. It's, you know, it's, um, but I think that it's, uh, I like it so much because I think that that particular component of writing, almost this essay to go with it, um, really gives you a clue into um, how intricately she's explored um, not just this technology, but even um, the the idea of I think, and maybe this is what you're saying, the idea of what a glitch is. You yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah. not just something <clears throat> disruptive, right? It's 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 uh, it's uh, it can be an experience unto it unto sure, in yeah. itself, and then it has. A technological component unto itself and exploring what that looks like you know there's a point where even one of the the father block is in a he's in some dimension and that's kind of how you know it's presented like they're rolling through these dimensions almost you know and the father blocks in a dimension that doesn't uh that essentially it, it, his uh, his techno his technology can't handle so he kind of spins out of control, you know, but again, she tells that through this really kind of like interesting kind of mash of like formal um, 
uh, a formal shapes interacting with one another. Yeah, that's, you know, that's so funny. I don't I just, know if that sounds. I don't. Am I making any sense? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it yeah, makes me sounds... now that you're. I mean, I saw the video, but I didn't. Um, I wasn't in there long enough to be able to pull all that. And it's really cool to hear you talk about it. And it's making me. My friend Birgit, um, who's this great uh, animator and video artist and very <laughs> mm-hmm. funny, made this amazing piece that the. Um, I feel ridiculous. The names escape me at the moment. I wrote about it, but uh, something not dissimilar. That is a story about these shapes, Mm -hmm. these animations that are sort of becoming self-aware or Mm -hmm. trying to whatever traverse these things. And it's like, it was really about like the, what was so fascinating about it was that the process of animating was kind of laid bare and became the narrative that drove the thing. So instead of like, instead of being seamless, it was actually like kind of layered and interesting. You see all these different things. And it seems like that's the interesting potential and glitch now that the kind of wave has passed. That yeah. It, it is this way to kind of, <clears throat> I guess, like not present something that's seamless. Yeah. You know, because like you, you look at a, somebody posted an image from, I think it was like, they're making the new, uh, what's the Pixar movie about the families at the Incredibles that are all like superheroes or something, but they like are making a sequel. And mm-hmm. I think it was from that. Somebody posted a screenshot from it where they like zoomed in and, you know, one of them is wearing like a polo shirt and it goes in so tight. You can see all the little fibers in it. And then the little like errant fuzz that's sticking off, which is like impressive in its own sense, but it's so seamless that it kind of removes all of the you don't even think about the production or what's going on in the background. And it's kind of cool to see somebody moving in the opposite direction yeah. or like just yeah. making that stuff more transparent. Well, and I think it's also, you know, I mean, I think the, the other component is probably thinking about glitch as um, not a mistake, but a transformation. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, uh, and I also think that's how she gets to these really kind of like stunning forms. You know, like I said, I feel like I've just never, seen i've just never seen those shapes i've never seen them look that way i've never i mean even the way that she portrays something that's i think kind of as difficult to grasp as dimensionality you know like at a certain point um in the narrative uh she talks about a tesseract you know and like do you do you know kind of i'm gonna totally botch this a tesseract i don't it's, it's essentially um like the fourth dimension it's like we can't even really conceive of okay. it you know um when a tesseract is like the dimension that houses the like a, a cube okay <laughs> i'm totally botching this no, sorry no. to any I, ast- I think astrophysicists yeah, no. that are tuning in i think i think i'm sort of understanding what you mean <laughs> yeah and it and so it's it's really complicated it's this kind of the it's just like um theory like it's a uh tesseract is like a concept from theoretical physics you okay. know um, but it's, you know, I was reminded of it not only because it shows up in the text of this um, work, but it's also this work is kind of similarly difficult to talk about, you know, okay. like it's, you know, like even yeah, when you yeah. were looking at it, you know, it's hard to describe, you know, am I looking at something three dimensional, like where, you know, what dimension did the three dimensional objects exist in, you know, I mean, it's really, yeah, I'm it's really to, complicated. Well, I'm going to have to go back and see it when. I mean, and that's the funny thing with video is, um, which is actually great that this is coming out while the show is up and not right before the opening, because I feel like this is work that uh, people should sit with a little bit, right? Like, I need to go back and watch this again, obviously, so that I can kind of like take it in a little bit more. And, um, And so... Ivan and Rose's work, how did you decide? I mean, you have this previous relationship with Kenya. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to put that kind of trifecta together? Because, I mean, it's all, I mean, Kenya also had a sculpture in there. But 
it's yeah. it's primarily video but these are pretty disparate practices yeah. and yet they sort of they're in conversation both in the room but also in this kind of more abstract way where people are it seems like they're exploring structures that maybe both have a physicality but are also abstract or something like yeah like the city or the way that cities are designed to move in city planning uh building blocks this other type of space the way that all this stuff happens in the background and then in kenya's work like whether it's currency or desire or all mm -hmm. of these other things that are both like physical but totally uh yeah. ethereal at the yeah. same time yeah. i mean i don't know if that's i'm like just i'm literally saying this out loud long. <laughs> <laughs> no no that's a, you can tell me to fuck off if that I'm is wrong. A, that's such a good read on it and i mean so so the reason i called this show uh magnification is because that's kind of oh, yeah. how that's how i thought of what um that's how i thought of what those artists were doing in those specific works. Right, right. So, you know, for example, um, with Rosa, like you're seeing up close, you know, like literally the building blocks of any digital image are these, are like a, um, a set of forms, you know what I mean? Are basically mm -hmm. just like a bunch of, forms and shapes yep. you know <laughs> there are a bunch of shapes um and to be able to see them i think um gave me a different like i said a glitch now like instead of thinking a glitch as like a mistake or um you can see it as a disruption or like i said a like an um a transformation i think and i um i liked that and i thought that that was i thought that was um as almost everything that we have becomes digitized, it yep. felt important to take another look um, at the technology that's now under underlining our entire, every, almost every image you see is digital, you yeah. know? Yeah. And it felt important to see uh, another way of thinking about that or, you know, approach it from another um, uh, direction. And I liked, and then also because, I mean, the amount of research, you know, uh, yeah. the amount of research just required to, um put something like that together you know again like that when i thought of magnification i was just thinking of you know just her spending time um really getting to know this technology in an intimate way um and well i just want to say i appreciate yeah. how articulate you're being about it while this car alarm goes off in the background you're doing <laughs> a one did you not hear it <laughs> crazy fucking loud <laughs> it's uh, i think that's living you in brooklyn yeah you barreled right through i know it's, it's sort of this like i don't that doesn't um yeah it's like car crazy, alarms but... loud loud music mm -hmm. you know arguments yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so okay so yeah. the so um, and ivan the same it's yeah. like so the other one the other piece of ivan's is uh he made three of these i uh the one that's in the show is called Untitled New York. And um, he is, the video itself is great. Um, it's in slow motion. And there are people who are turning around slowly um, towards the camera. And there's no sound. And, you know, I had been thinking about this piece for a few years. I remember seeing it and thinking, what of what great choices this part this artist made right yeah. like i'm i'm just thinking like the video so the slow motion right um is incredibly satisfying it's edited well in that there are it kind of cuts in and out like you get a you get a black screen for about two or three seconds between 
each clip of a bunch of people at a crosswalk turning towards him. And so they looked like portraits, you know? Yeah, yeah. the and stuff's really painterly. Like yeah. the framing and all of the colors and everything the like colors, that. The colors, everything. And the way people turn around and the yeah. slow motion makes it look very graceful. And then um, there's no sound, which I thought was also important. And then, then, you know, I happened to be yammering about this work sometime this summer. And someone said, do you know what he's saying? Uh, and I said, no. And they say, he's shouting, I love you. Oh, and so he's shouting. And so people are turning around. Yeah, he's shouting. I love you. <laughs> you're beautiful. You're perfect to people on the streets. And so they're turning around to this. And it's and you know again when I thought of you know um, magnifying right yeah. by a form and strategy, kind of performing this magnification. That's what I was thinking. It's so in a like I said technically or formally right. It's the 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 way he decides to make this piece um, or present the piece um, is I thought really. Uh, sharp, um, but then it's this kind of look. At, I mean, the pe because he's just shouting at random people, yeah, and yeah. so you see them turn around. Like the kids are the best because yeah. the kids they get they get excited. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, also, I mean, there's a number of like single dudes who don't who don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what to do when a man is like yelling, "I love you, you're beautiful" behind him on the street, and so you get these strange laughs, you get embarrassment, you yeah, get all yeah. these things. And I just thought they were such a New York in particular, you know, gets this reputation for being such a tough city. But then yeah. you know, it's like you know, someone tells you you're beautiful and you collapse. You don't know what to do. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. Well, and it's funny too because I would uh, I would. If somebody yelled, I love you, I would turn around. But if somebody was just screaming, like, fuck you, or these other things, I would just be like, no, they're just yelling at somebody. Uh, yeah, you know, like that's Yeah, <laughs> yeah <whatever. laughs> pretty much happens all the time. All the just time. I'm like, there, I don't even know. I, there's no one else on this block, but someone was here that they're still yelling yeah, at. And that's yeah, fine. It's but fine. it's probably not me. That's just what it is. But if somebody's like, yeah. I love you, I'd be like, really? Yeah. Me? <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And then, and then Kenya, you know, um, Kenya, you know, again, taking on capitalism, um, in a variety of different ways. I think um, she, so she decided to, you know, cakes are this really interesting part of like, all cultures kind of, mm -hmm. you know, everyone loves cake. You get cake at your birthday, you have cake at your wedding, you have cake TV shows, you can pay thousands of dollars for a cake. The Supreme Court is currently hearing cases on whether you have to make <laughs> gay people cakes, you know, <laughs> you people smash cakes. Yeah, yeah. Many, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, they're really, this kind of universal, everybody likes cake. They're universal, you know? And um, so, and cakes and all their universality have, of course, become part of a, you know, are part of a sexual fetish. Yeah. This one called cake sitting. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> cake sitting is uh, exactly, uh, as you know, what it sounds like. Yeah. People sitting on cakes. Well, and you see, when I came to the show and you're like, do you know what cake sitting is? I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, now I've seen all the videos. <laughs> I'm yeah. aware of that. Yeah. And it's, you know, I was wondering, you know, do you, I was, I don't know if it's a YouTube-born fetish or not, but it is certainly very suited for the media. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you can edit them in funny ways. You can add weird music. You can, you know what I mean? You can yeah. add graphics. You, I mean, it's, it seems really, really... Like YouTube seems really ripe <laughs> for a cake sitting fetish, you know, where you write your name on the cake, the cake can be different colors. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, there was, this is, I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but there used to be a website, God knows how long ago, it was called cakefarts.com. No. And I think it was just, I think it was women doing that on cakes. On cakes? Or someone showed me that. And I, I want to say this was like 10 or 12 years ago. Oh my, really? Yeah. And I was just like, this is a thing. 
So when cake sitting became a thing and all of a sudden that was uh, out and about, I was like, this seems this seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can understand. I mean, it's like it's well, it's like you said, too. It's a it's a thing that everybody has some kind of relationship with. It's also meant to be like sweet and these other things. It's like, I mean, there aren't I mean, maybe there are probably if I can think of it, there are. But, you know, as opposed to like a savory food, like somebody sitting yeah. on like an eggplant parmesan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. I don't know. Maybe that's a thing. Yeah. But it seems like the broader appeal mm-hmm. would be the concept of cake. Of and cake, also they're yeah. colorful. They're all these mm-hmm. other things that they're also very smashable. Very smashable. They, they move around. They move One around. Can, they seem like – and there's also this history of I think people like uh, – you know, like one of the one of like fetish 101 is like licking whipped cream off your part. Like a Cosmo in it's 1992 true. would have told you to try yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, something yeah. about the sweetness, whereas it's like, uh, I don't know if they'd tell you to put, um, I don't know, like Bragg's amino acid on your lover <laughs> and like lick that off. I don't know if that has the yeah, same. Yeah, the same like, appeal as cake. It's like dessert, you know, yeah. you get this extra thing. But so, yeah, it's just like. It's also yeah. a very painterly video because it's got all the crazy uh, sprinkles. And I was so going to say sparkles. But and that's what I was going to say. It. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's like I think it's about, I, you know, and again, I think Kenya decided to take this, all of this kind of, uh, all of these kind of cultural ideas about cake. Um, and it's cur- and then kind of, you know, also just kind of thinking about the absurdity of the fact that there are courses, there are, you know, there are really kind of like, culture wars happening about cake, you know, um, that are very much tied to, I think, fundamentally the way we understand ourselves as Americans. You know, she decided uh, that she would use the strategy of cake sitting, you know, uh, and the uh, kind of uh, um, the sort of like humor and curiosity, you know, of all of that. uh, But also that, but the magnification of it makes it this thing where it, um, it, it does this weird on a loop where at first it's like a, a very alluring video because it's so colorful mm-hmm. and then when you figure out what it is there's like this moment of like oh no that's a butt yeah but then another layer where you're just like oh it's a butt <laughs> you know like it has this complicated kind of thing it's with it that's very interesting by that magnification and she and and you know i think specifically the way it you know i think she magnifies a few different things i think like the formal magnification would be you know you watch all these videos and they're all shot head on Mm-hmm. And so Kenya shot the video from uh, from under a chair. So you're seeing like cake sitting from, I mean, what would seem to be, you know, I think kind of an obvious almost angle to do the cake sure. sitting from. And, you know, so Ke- and so Kenya decided to, you know, like I said, literally magnify it that way. So you're looking at the underside of like a, you know, a, a see-through chair. Yeah. Uh, and you're, you know, seeing people sitting on the cake, but also... um it it i think it was it was really a study of abstraction yeah, i think yeah. in a lot of ways you know and um well it's like what's the difference between somebody like using their buttocks to smush a cake around versus like an abex painter just like smacking pigment on a thing i mean they're both like a really part of the i'm sure part of the appeal for the performer with cake sitting is like it's kind of fucking fun to make a mess i think it's fun and to also make a you're mess. like you know, you're just like wagging around. If you're smacking paint on something, I'm sure it's a, a similar process. And yeah. I don't know if every abstract painter would want to talk about it that way, but like <laughs> I can't help but think that when I see just like a like a painting that looks like that, I'm just like, oh, you're just having fun making a fucking mess, aren't you, buddy? It's true. That's fine. And, and you know, just say that. It's true. That's all you have to say. All you got to say is, it's I fun. would like like it more. <laughs> and I think, and I think that's one thing that I've always, <laughs> I've always kind of admired about Kanga's practice is that. She um, does not, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, you don't have to be the 
painter on the verge of right, right, right. death. Well, you know some, what I mean? To yeah. make to make beautiful, has, meaningful abstractions. Yeah, inner stuff has some humor in it too, but it's also like the the kind of baseline of everything is like capital race, like all the like very interesting things going on. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. she's she's got a really measured hand. I feel like she does. I mean, it's and that's funny to say about a video where it's literally an ass smashing like right. cake in my face. But that's but what you the- see. You're like her hand is so precise. <laughs> it's true. It's like it's, it's true. It's like yeah, I didn't think I would use the word subtle to describe the video. But the politics contained therein yes. are indeed like this kind of like yep. they're they're there if you want them. Yes. And yeah. uh, for the kind of the person who's going to spend the time, like yeah. it's great. Yeah. And if you don't want to spend the time, you just walk by, it's like a, you get a kick out of it. Yeah. You know, it's it's a has a lot of tears of access, mm-hmm. I feel like, for people depending on where they are politically or where they are in their day mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. else, which mm-hmm. is something that's not easy to do. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think that to Kenya's credit, a lot of that is because she goes kind of, I think she's always looking beyond those things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, like you said, the politics are there, race, class, capitalism, they're, um, you know, um, they're all there. But I think that the reason the work connects to people, or, or I think people can connect to it is because um, she presents it in such a way that there is something beyond all those things, like be, you know, beyond the divisiveness of all those things. There's a new way forward. There's a way that we can. Uh, there's, and I think inclusivity, right, mm-hmm. is what I would say. Uh, Kenya does well. Is you know, there's this, you know, there's. It's not just her, but in the video, you know, there's uh, one of her friends, this person who's white. The second video is overlaid between. <laughs> Her and uh, her and Maggie. Uh, hello, Maggie. Uh, hello. <laughs> her and Maggie's behinds kind of overlaid in this really interesting and this really beautifully edited video uh, of them both sitting on sprinkles. <laughs> and it's that you know, it's like so. Even though you see like whiteness in one video and blackness in one, it's not about the divisiveness of race necessarily. Although we know that that's there because she's bringing it together yeah, yeah, in this yeah. particular way. And we're just. Uh... God, that fucking car line. I know. And we're just in a <laughs> and we're just in a social space though where like because of uh just contextually what's happening politically, mm-hmm. that to see white next to black, immediately we project meaning onto it, which is sort of funny, especially if it's kind of like a, a wink and a nod, like actually it's pretty matter of fact. That's <laughs> the other person who's in the video. But yeah. we bring our own shit to it. Yeah. Um yeah. Harrison will be opening up in March, is that right? Yes. March ish. Uh, I think March March ish, March, April, uh, with a solo show by an artist named Gregory Bay. Uh he's based out of Chicago and makes um I think a lot of work that, you know, I, I'm going to say it. I think a lot of it's kind of romantic, you know, okay. romantic, but very tense and very careful uh, and very um, really kind of impactful objects that kind of do um, this reckoning with, uh, I think they reckon a lot with uh, the fact that we're only human, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think Greg, uh, I'm really excited to show Greg. How did you connect with Greg? Um do I just know some artists that know him okay. you know and kind of ended up on a studio visit and uh ended up just being really kind of intrigued by the things he makes and yeah. so yeah I'm, I'm excited I'm always excited to see stuff that comes out of Chicago like I know that it's like a it's like a capital A art city but mm-hmm. at the same time like there's just the people that I've met who are from there and they'll 
they'll admit it, you know, after a beer or two, but they've got a little bit of a complex about being in Chicago, <laughs> but they fucking oftentimes work a lot harder. I mean, there's just more. <clears throat> and I remember when I used to work for uh, PNCA, we would go to these graduate national portfolio days to try to recruit people to come and get MFAs. Yeah. Um, and the one in Chicago was always like had the best people and it wasn't just Chicago people. It was like Midwest kids who yeah. were like, I got to fuck. I'm like hungry. I got to do something. But I'm but always it's like New York's like the center. I mean, this is, and this is, you know, I think probably related to in some ways to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, in, in my brain right now, New York is functionally like the center of capitalism, <laughs> you know? So it's like, and I think that, I, I think that that touches everything. Even, I mean, every industry that is based here. Yeah. And so it does affect the way art is made, you know, the way people approach art, showing art, et cetera. And so, you know, I'm, I'm happy that a Midwestern city is coming to prominence just to, you know, add a little bit into the mix, you know, to, to make yeah. the conversation a little, um, you know, a little more diverse and, you know, to give... Yeah, I, I just I think that uh, the more perspectives on art and art making, the better. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think con yeah, I, contextualization I think is crucial to keep in mind if you're gonna have an art program, or at least it seems to be to me. And it's yeah, I mean, it's I think I was lucky with Zareen. You know, I was like lucky when I I did Avon Franco Mattis at yeah at you know at Essex Flowers, and it was the same kind of thing. It was like okay, there are these artists who've been doing that art since the '90s. Somehow, you know, like they need a, like a, let's do a cool New York show at, yeah. at six hours of all spaces in our temporary space in the front of a gallery. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. but I think that's, uh, I mean, it's cool to think about a new space beginning and keeping it um, sort of flexible and nimble so that, like you just said, you can, the work can be like responsive to the context of both like time and space, not only like what the objects are, but what's happening around it. And so, I mean, that's part of the tough thing I think about, <clears throat> excuse me about like museum programming mm -hmm. is like planning a show two years out and trying to be like, yeah, this especially right now. Yeah. God, I almost just said now more than ever. I did basically a version of that <laughs> and I fucking hate that so much. But I just mean simply in the hyper accelerated, like we were just talking about before we hopped on the mics about how quickly like you can't even like what, <laughs> what fucking reference are you going to make today that yeah. in 14 days, somebody's going to understand like that has to do with the presidential administration. It'll be, gone yeah but so like to think about a museum show like Two that years. but with a but with a gallery program especially one that you're kind of like designing out as it's happening mm -hmm. i think there's a ton of potential to really change it up and you you know you have a track record with kind of already having a like a thumb on the pulse of what's going on so i think you're going to do great i hope so i just i just want to you know i mean i do when i think about it it's like i want to i don't i don't think i want a mega gallery i want to like Make, show good art, you know, enable artists who I think uh, are making meaningful work to make a living, you know, from their work. Yeah. Uh, and for me to make a living from from showing it and championing it. You yeah. Know? And uh, taking some of that risk. Yeah, I mean, that's taking, it, you know, I mean, risk. I think that uh, <laughs> people give, you know, understandably, people make a lot of jokes about like galleries and things like that. But it's like really a lot of the people who are uh, running them are taking a pretty fucking big risk by <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's like a ridiculous job yeah, yeah but i somehow like you know even on days when you know i feel like if 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 the job had a subtitle it would be like everybody hates kendra you know like <laughs> like you're, you know the artists are bad at you the your clients need a thing you get it's like 
it's never ending. But even on those days, you know, it makes me it makes me really happy, you know, to to do to do what I do. You know, oh, yeah, like Ivan right. and Rosa. Yeah. You know, I never I never would have met them. You know, had I not wanted to do the show, and it's now you know now I'm learning from these two artists who are amazing and can can offer so much and and now other people can see them i mean ivan shows with a uh, paratin you cool. know which is like a large french gallery mm -hmm. but i thought i you know i think it's cool to have him in like this kind of yeah, yeah. in my like small pop-up context you totally know? um well yeah congrats on the on the pop-up uh folks you can go see it until february 24th at bordelami and uh, Kendra, thank you so much for coming by. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. And uh, everybody else, I will be on another show next week. <laughs> this song is from an actual video on YouTube called Law School Funk, uploaded by a faculty member at the University of Alberta Law School. This class, that textbook, McGonagall love, giving me the look. This one for them keener kids, them smart kids, straight D's listers, typing. Reading, living it up in the city. Got robes on with our hair done. High five myself, I'm so witty. I'm real smart. So smart. Figuring out this whole law thing. I'm real smart. So smart. Classes actually interest me. I'm real smart. So smart. Judge say my name, you know who I am. I'm real smart. So smart. Ain't mad about nothing. Break it down. Ron, hey, what you doing? Hermione, hey, what you doing? Hey, Grid, hey, what you doing? The law school funk gon' give it to you. The law school funk gon' give it to you. The law school funk gon' give it to you. Thursday night, we in the spot. Don't believe me, just watch. Come on. Don't believe me, just watch. Don't believe me, just watch. Begin. Sign on the guild, Halsbury, Black's Law Dictionary. If we go to class, we're gonna do all right.